1: All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. We've got an awesome Thursday morning show for you today. And we start today with unionized BC civil servants at the contract bargaining table looking for some significant raises here, including health care workers and hospital workers in our province. A lot of them are reporting that they are stressed and burned out, especially after the two year long pandemic. Check out this brand new opinion poll here. More than one. One third of healthcare workers in BC say they're ready to quit. They're ready to pack it in and walk away. They are stressed out and burned out after the last couple of years. We're hearing this across the entire spectrum of the civil service in British Columbia. A lot of the unions here saying their workers have been on the front lines of the pandemic, the wildfires, the flooding, the overdose crisis. At the same time, the cost of living is going through the roof. I think We're going to be in for some tough negotiations here. Got Mike Old standing by, Hospital Employees Union. Have a listen to this brand new ad that's been put out by the union here. This is a message from the Hospital Employees Union to the people of BC here. Have a listen. These last few years haven't been easy for healthcare workers,
2: like Monique. We do it because we care. But the pressure? It's adding up. We're short-staffed. People are burning out.
3: With rising costs, we're falling behind. Too many of us are leaving the jobs we love.
2: We need to support healthcare workers like Monique. With safer working conditions and higher wages, we can build the healthcare system we all want for the future. Learn more at thisishealthcare.ca. A message from the Hospital Employees Union.
1: All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Mike Old, coordinator of policy and planning at the Hospital Employees Union. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hey, Mike, thanks for coming on.
4: Thanks, Mike. Good morning.
1: Okay, good morning to you, Mike. So we heard in that ad there from hospital workers talking about the stresses and strains that they're under. I think a lot of people are feeling that way these days. I'm taking a look at the brand new opinion poll out on this, showing that more than a third of healthcare workers say they're just ready to pack it in and quit. What did you take away from that poll?
4: Well, I've got to say, Mike, we, we pulled on the same question last June, and at that time it was one in four workers. Now it's one in three. And I think we've been through the Delta uh, and the Omicron variant since then, and it's been a really, really, really difficult time for our members on the front line of healthcare. So there's, there's no question about it. Many healthcare workers are at the breaking point. They've been exhausted by all they've been through, they're struggling to make ends meet. And we need to deal with this if we're going to have the kind of healthcare system we want going forward.
1: Okay, how many healthcare workers are saying they're burned out? Maybe they're not ready to quit, but they're feeling stressed, they're feeling burned out on the job.
4: Yeah, so we pulled on the question about whether uh, our members had experienced pandemic-related burnout, and uh, 75%, three out of four, said that they had experienced that. That's a really high number. Um, and, you know, one in three don't believe there are adequate mental health supports in their workplace. Um, and workloads are going up. Two-thirds reported that their workloads have gotten worse over the last two years. And a quarter of these workers say that their employer rarely or never backfills a position that's left vacant by illness or injury. You know, I think during the Omicron um wave in January and February, everybody was paying attention to the news and understanding how short staffed we were in our hospitals and our long term care facilities. It's really, really necessary that we kind of create the conditions to sort of maintain the skilled workforce we have right now and, you know, have the conditions that will attract, you know, tomorrow's
1: healthcare workforce. So that means a raise. Right? Like a big raise.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, there can't really be a serious conversation about retention and recruitment for healthcare workers if we don't address the need for a significant boost to their compensation package. Um, you know, I think like everybody, uh, healthcare workers are struggling to keep a roof over their heads. Uh, you know, they live in some of the most expensive housing markets in the country. Groceries are going up. Gas is going up. Um, you know, Healthcare workers have been characterized as heroes during this pandemic. So these heroes are now at the bargaining table and they need our help to, uh, you know, to get by and to make sure that we have a sustainable workforce going forward.
1: Speaking of Mike Old from the Hospital Employees Union, a lot of the big unions, almost all of them at the bargaining table right now. Mike, you got teachers, healthcare workers, hospital workers, thousands of government workers here are negotiating with government and they're all talking money at the bargaining table and they're all looking for a significant raise. So now, you know, everyone out there is feeling the pinch right now, especially with inflation. And that, I know that's another thing that you asked your own people about in this poll, right? Like how many of, how many of your people feel like they could even lose their house or their home.
4: Yeah, I mean, we asked a couple of uh, questions about people's economic situation and our members report one out of three of them are more worried about their finances than they were two years ago. And one out of four of our members is actually worried that their current housing is at risk. So, you know, healthcare workers have got some serious stress going on in their lives, not just because of workloads and what's happening on the front lines, but mm-hmm. just kind of keeping their lives going with their housing, their groceries, and supporting their families.
1: Hey, Mike, I spoke earlier this week to Stephanie Smith, the president of the B.C. General Workers Union, and as I know you're aware of, and we talked about the negotiations that that union is going through right now. I asked her how far apart the two sides here are on money. Here's what she had to say to me. I'll get your thoughts. Their initial wage proposal, uh, I'll be perfectly frank and honest, um,
2: was too far away from what our members have told us they want to see in their agreement.
1: How far apart are you?
2: Well, it, it, it's a gap.
1: <laughs> it's a gap for sure. How big, how big is the gap? You know, we use the word chasm in one of our releases, and I,
5: I think that's a fair, fair assessment.
1: Okay, Stephanie Smith there, president of the BCGEU union, saying the two sides are a chasm apart at the bargaining table. Speaking to Mike Old from the Hospital Employees Union, are you guys in the same boat, far apart?
4: You know, we're not quite as far along in our negotiations as the BCGEU is, but of course we're concerned with the messages coming out of their table, and uh, we have a bit more bargaining to do at our end, and uh, we're looking forward to having those discussions with the employer, but they haven't happened yet.
1: Okay, but typically, it sounds like all the unions that are negotiating here, Mike, are coming to the table saying with the same message that the cost of living is going up. Inflation is rampant. We're looking at, what, 5 6% inflation rate in B.C. and across Canada. So would it be fair to speculate that you're looking for, you know, unions are looking for a raise to, to at least match the inflation rate,
4: correct? I mean, we, we, we need to bargain an agreement so that healthcare workers can stay ahead and not fall behind. I mean, we need to do that to support these workers who've been supporting us for the last two years. But we also need to do it, Mike, because we need to make sure that we've got a, a sustainable healthcare workforce going forward. We need to make sure that people want to come and work in our healthcare system. It's a tight job market out there. I think there's a lot of uh, kind of wage increases in the rest of the economy, and I think we have to do a good job for healthcare workers and for other public service workers who've uh, been doing an amazing job over
1: the I'm last. A- how much do they make right now? Like, you know, the typical wage for an HEU worker, a hospital support worker, how much are they making a year average?
4: So if you want to take sort of an average worker in our union, like the biggest single uh, occupation in our big bargaining unit, our province wide master agreement is uh, would be a carry. That would be a typical job. And they would make about $50,000 a year.
1: Fifty thousand a year. Okay, and what kind of raises have been have you guys received over the last few years?
4: Uh, typically, in the public sector, the settlements have been sort of in the area of two percent a year.
1: Two percent. Okay. All right. When 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 is this? When is your contract expire? Is it expired now, or is it still in fact?
4: Yeah. So there, there there's about uh, just just under four hundred thousand workers throughout the public sector, and almost all of those agreements expire at the end of March. Um, Um, so yeah. Like one week
1: from, one week from today.
4: Yes. And I expect that lots of the unions will sort of continue negotiating past that point. But yes, that's at the end of the month is when the agreements expire.
1: Mike, we're following it closely. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today.
4: I really appreciate it, Mike. Have a great day. Uh
1: All right, let's talk about this overheated housing market and, as usual, prices going through the roof. Some people are desperate to get into this market. They are bidding over the asking price. Sometimes they are willing to buy a home with no restrictions, no appraisal of the property, no inspection of the home. The B.C. government now proposing a cooling-off period. Should buyers be allowed to back out of a deal even after signing on the dotted line. Now, I've got a great panel standing by on this. First, have a listen to this report here from Czech TV, how a Nanaimo family got burned on a home sale. They agreed to buy the home without an inspection. Guess what? Turns into a nightmare. The home is full of mold. Have a listen to this from Czech TV reporter Sky Ryan here. The family's investigator says he's learned that over the years, the house filled with water, which likely led to the mold evidenced in these reports they've now paid for, mold that makes it impossible for Matthew to live in the home now.
4: The entire house is filled with penicillin and stachybotrys, which are both toxic molds, life-threatening molds, and I can't breathe in there.
1: So even our interview is taking place outside. Matthew can't live in the home anymore. And even Wendy struggles to catch her breath here. It feels kind of scratchy and itchy and yucky. and I'll probably start coughing in a minute. President of the Vancouver Island Real Estate Board, Don McClintock, says this is why inspections are so crucial and why buyers shouldn't be tempted to pass on them. Without any conditions, then they have unconditionally purchased the home. They have no further recourse after that. All right, let's discuss now with my guest. What a great panel got for you, Dan Coulter. Dan is the NDP MLA in Chilliwack. Hey, Dan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay. Also on the line is Mike Bernier, Liberal MLA, Peace River South. Hi, Mike. Good morning, Mike and Dan. Thank you, guys, both of you for being here. Dan Coulter, let me go to you first. You were highlighting this this particular story on social media this week as a reason for a cooling off period, uh, allow buyers to back out of a deal. How would that work?
5: Well, it, it basically will provide a period of time uh, to where the um, home buyers. Can uh, have an inspection done and also make sure that um, their financing is is in order. Um, as you heard from that family, I mean it's even starker when you hear their own voices um, about how just how distressing it is if you go and spend so much of your money without conditions. And um, you know, to be honest, these are the largest financial decisions people are making in their lives, and they're not just buying houses here; they're buying homes. And as you can hear there. Just how awful it would be if you couldn't move into your house. I, I couldn't imagine.
1: So, so the government is proposing this cooling off period, right? So, how would that work? You'd be able to, even if you sign on the dotted line, it's a done, sealed, signed, sealed, delivered deal. You could still back out later if you're the buyer, right? I don't, I don't know exactly what the legislation will look like,
5: but after you've made an offer and it's accepted, then you would have a period of time in which you could. Um, You could get an inspection done and make sure that your financing is is
1: in order. Okay, Liberal MLA Mike Bernier, do you think that'll solve anything? Absolutely
6: uh, not. It's not going to solve the issue as the NDP think it's it's going to. In fact, it could create even more problems. Um, The BC Real Estate Association even put out a white paper calling on government to reconsider this. Uh, The tens of thousands of realtors around the province who are well aware of some of the challenges we're facing with the skyrocketing uh, cost of living that the NDP said that they would uh, solve half a decade ago, and it's only getting worse. But, you know, the one of the concerns is that, uh, you know, people might start putting in multiple bids on places. If they can just back out, uh, that's going to be really problematic. We're thinking about purchasers, maybe, but we're not thinking about the sellers, and we have to think about the whole system holistically yeah. around supply and demand.
1: Okay. NDP MLA, Dan Coulter. Dan, I'm taking a look at your Twitter, and you tweeted the other day, Kevin Falcon and the Liberals have come out against this. Why? One of the reasons Falcon just spent the last decade working for a big developer who profited from an overheated housing market. So is that what you think? The the Liberals are opposing something like this? What, because they're in the pockets of real estate developers and their leader was a former real estate developer? Well, look, like,
5: You know, like Mike says, he's talking about what the BC Real Estate Association has said, and like the BC Real Estate Association is there to look after their members, which are real estate agents, and I don't blame them for that. That's that's their job. But I was elected, you know, to put people first, and um, this is about protecting people, not real estate agents. And I think the B.C. Liberals have proved time and time again that they've been on the side of developers and folks who, um, who are profiting off this overheated uh, housing market. And I think it's evidenced by, um, you know, where their,
1: where their leader was, what his most recent job was. Mike Bernier, what do you say to that?
6: Well, you know, I always uh, chuckle every time I think the NDP have no solutions of themselves, so they have to talk about something from 16 years ago. Look, Kevin Falcon, our new leader, was never ever a speculator. Never was, never has been. Uh, He was working for a company that was building market housing. And this is what we need more of, actually, in British Columbia. And it's unfortunate that the NDP continue to send attacks out to companies, uh, businesses, individuals who are building the much-needed market housing. Look, this is a holistic approach that we have to have and the, the NDP approach just continually seems to be try to blame other people for their five years. What
1: would be, okay, so Mike Bernier, what would be a better way forward? Like, what would the Liberals do to resolve this or make make the market better,
6: more well, affordable? Well, again, it's, it's a whole bunch of issues, uh, Mike. Like, we have to get the supply and demand issue uh, dealt with, and that means working with local governments, working with uh, developers, working with government and taxation. We've got the highest tax jurisdiction in the province and that gets passed on to people who are trying to purchase places i mean the bc real estate board uh, here in greater vancouver says it's 2.3 million dollars now all-time high for an average home in vancouver Um, so this needs to be addressed i mean we need to get uh, a system in place where we have that supply uh, in that market housing to get people into an affordable place so they can own that home that dan's talking about
1: okay ndpm la dan coulter what do you say to that
5: Well, I'm really happy that uh, Mike brought up taxes um, because of the tax uh, that uh, his leader, Kevin Falcon, and and the B.C. Liberals oppose, which is the speculation tax. And let's be clear here, that tax is is, uh, for people who own two or more homes that leave them empty. So... uh, you know, which side is the BC Liberals on? Are they in it for uh, people here? Do they want to protect home buyers? Do they want to make things more affordable for people? Or do they want to reduce taxes on uh, people who are benefiting from this overheated what, housing market and are, already have uh, what would, know, multiple houses?
1: What would you say to the, Mike, or Dan, what would you say to the Liberals' argument that, you know, trying to tax our way out of this or trying to put the brakes on an overheated housing market was sort of, demand side measures and taxes is we've tried it's been tried and it's failed what we have to do instead is on the supply side we need to build more stuff build more homes get them on the market what do you say to that argument
5: oh absolutely there's
1: no doubt that we need more supply unless we
5: can agree um, and you know, but the housing market is a is a holistic uh, market. So we're taking a holistic rep- uh, approach in many measures, and we're at, we've been adding supply. We you know we've been uh, putting record investments into building homes uh, that people can afford. We have a ten year plan. We have thirty two thousand homes already built or underway. And that speculation tax that I'm talking about put eighteen thousand empty condos um, in the Lower Mainland on the market for rental. Okay. So. You know, we are working on supply side, too. Is there more work to do? There is absolutely no doubt that there is more work to do.
1: Okay, Mike Bernier, what do you say to
5: that?
6: Well, I always chuckle when the NDP say the housing is underway. Uh, They're half a decade into that uh, 10-year plan. And in fact, and unfortunately, they've only opened just over 5,200 units. So if it's really about people, as Dan's trying to say, which it should be, Uh, then the NDP has to start coming good on their promises. They promised 114,000 affordable homes and have opened in the five years only 5,200. And you know what? That $400 renter's rebate they promised uh, for the last few elections for five years has yet to materialize as well. All
1: right, talking affordable housing with my guests, NDP MLA, Dan Coulter, Liberal MLA, Mike Bernier, tons of phone calls, Scott on Vancouver Island. Hi, Scott, go ahead.
0: Hey man, I'm just kind of listening to you guys go back and forth. And Dan, you talk about being for the people. You've got a property transfer tax on the average price home in Vancouver, two point three million dollars of sixty to seventy thousand dollars in tax. Doesn't even go to the person's home. And then you guys are talking about doing a capital gains on the sale of homes. Gross, man. You're not for the people.
1: Wait a wait a minute. Capital gains tax on the sale of homes. That's is that true, Dan? You guys are you guys looking at that? Not that I'm aware of, Mike. No, and I didn't think so. Okay. What, do you, what about the property transfer tax? Um, well, I mean,
5: the, you know, the property ta- transfer tax has been a tax for a long time on homes. Yeah. Um, we're looking at a lot of measures uh, across, uh, you know, real estate affordability in a holistic way. And I'm sure there'll be other actions um, coming, you know, as, as we go along here. But we're doing the best we can. Um, I mean... Mike Bernier there says he, he chuckles, uh, he chuckles that we, uh, you know, talk about what has happened, uh, before this government, but I'll tell you what, when someone drives a car into a ditch at 60 miles an hour, and just as you're towing it out, starts pointing at the dents, uh, blaming you, uh, for them and why you haven't, uh, knocked the dents out quick enough. I mean, it, that's laughable. Okay.
6: Um, Mike, 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 if I yeah. can though, back go back to ahead. The, point in the question, yeah. um, property transfer tax, the NDP are absolutely loving it, which is why a lot of people wonder why they're, if, if they're actually trying to solve this problem, $3 billion almost in this budget that the government is collecting because of the overheated market on housing, $3 billion going into general revenue for this government to spend thanks to...
1: Well, that. how much how much did the B.C. Liberals pocket in the property transfer tax when you guys are in power?
6: Well, the actual property transfer tax under the NDP has almost tripled uh, in the last five years, uh, Mike.
1: Okay, let's go back to the phone lines. Paul in Fraser Valley. Hey, Paul.
0: Hey, good morning. Uh, I got to say, I'm glad we had that commercial break because you probably would have just cut me off with my comments before that. I, I have been a realtor for 35 years in this market. When I hear Dan saying that he was elected to look after people, not realtors, guess what? We're people, Another thing, we're representing people on both sides, buying and selling. We don't like this market, but I can tell you a very simple concept that clearly this guy missed because he was in basket weaving class instead of economics. Okay, okay,
1: we don't need to insult but people. It, just, just make it, your point, the, please.
0: Okay, the only way you're going to bring down the cost of houses in the Fraser Valley is to either get rid of the ALR and flood supply side or cut down on immigration. I'm not in favor of either. I'm guessing he's not either. So the high cost of ground oriented housing in this market is here to stay.
1: Okay, Dan like Col- if- Dan Coulter.
5: Yeah, so I I I don't necessarily disagree. Um with with that but we're working with local governments to speed up approvals of new new homes and some you know we're going to have to build different kinds of houses not single family homes that use up a lot of space and but yeah we can't keep building them unless we start
1: eating up alr that's true let's go to dan on the line in port moody hi dan go ahead
7: hey how are you doing guys uh, i'm a home appraiser so i have a little bit of insight of this whole thing this would okay. be the biggest catastrophe ever There's so many moving parts when it comes to real estate. You have the seller who's looking to buy a new home. I mean, the domino effect, if if someone was able to back out. The other thing I just want to make, too, what happens, because market is going up, the markets go down, too. So what happens when the market's going down, and then everyone starts pulling the plug on their new purchase? I mean, this is it just does not make sense. If you want to have a law where you have to put in an offer with subjects, meaning... An appraisal, a home inspection, and you are—you have financing. That's one thing, but not to
2: be able to back out. The domino effect would just be a nightmare. Okay,
1: okay. NDP MLA Dan Coulter, what do you say to that? Like, maybe instead of saying, "Okay, we will let you back out of the deal as a buyer," maybe make it mandatory to have an appraisal or home inspection instead. Your thoughts? Well, look, I don't know what
5: this legislation will look like. I don't know that it'll look like you—you. You, sign and ink a deal and then get to back out on it. What it does provide is that after, you know, an offer is made and accepted that then there, that person will be given a period of time in order to do a house inspection. I mean, that's, that's how houses used to be bought before, you know, okay. Um, okay. This, Ber- this is nothing revolutionary. This is just, you know, trying to take some pressure off of yeah. people in this overheated market. Mike These Bernie are real are you- people buying houses with the, they're, biggest investments they'll ever make in their
1: lives right. and i think we really need to we really need to help them slow down a bit okay mike bernie i got 30 seconds there to respond
6: yeah no, i really appreciate that last caller all the callers the um he's completely right this is we have to look at things holistically and one of the biggest issues that i'm seeing is first of all we don't know all the legislation because the government hasn't told anybody exactly what's going on which is creating this issue uh, but i'm curious to see well, who government's even consulted with because i can tell you I've reached out to most stakeholders. It would be the experts on the ground on this. Nobody has told me that they've spoken with okay. Mr. Eby or the government. So they're making it up on the fly.
1: Welcome back to the show. Let's keep talking about the national dental care plan that's been announced this week. My guest is Dr. Wendy Godette from City Dental Care. Hey, Wendy, thank you for coming on today.
2: Thank you for having me, Michael.
1: <laughs> okay, Wendy, I'm I'm very interested in the mobile dental clinic that... You guys have operating there, and this, this is for like low-income people who need dental care. Is that right?
2: Yeah, hundred percent. We yeah. um, basically are a branch of City Dream Center, and so City Care Dental provides the dental services to um, for City Dream Center on behalf of City Dream
1: Center. Yeah, no, that's very cool. And so, wh- where do you operate?
2: Well, it depends where our grants are. We presently have a grant that's in the uh, lower, the White Rock, South Surrey area. Uh, we received um, a, a sizable grant uh, through the Healthy Communities Peace Arch um, Hospital Foundation. Yeah. And so we presently have a volunteer team of oral health professionals, and we provide um, about 300 hours of uh, free dental care to low-income, um, marginalized individuals uh, per year uh, based on that particular grant.
1: Wow, that's pretty awesome. Like, And I'm sure that's badly needed, right?
2: Oh my goodness, we have wait lists. We have people calling from other jurisdictions. I mean, we do have other funding, but again, we all have full time jobs. And so this is at present, um, a volunteer, um, sort of initiative. Uh, we've done, we've had, uh, clinics at schools. Uh, several low in that have been designated low income schools we've also uh, been in uh, other communities that have uh, we've received private sponsorship for we've worked in um, uh, transitional homes we've worked um, for agencies that are helping individuals through addictions so yeah we've, we've we've really covered our bases in terms of our demographic and it's all been funded through the generous donations of uh, you know, various sponsors, private and corporate.
1: Right. Well, I, I tip my hat to you. I think that's a, that's an awesome service that you have going there. my guest is Dr. Wendy Godette, City Dental Care. So, Wendy, when we take a look at the national dental care plan that's been laid out here this week, what went through your mind when you heard that?
2: Well, the core value is there. I mean, we certainly support um, oral health as a basic human right. I mean, that was something set out probably 10 years ago by the World Health Organization. And I'm totally committed to that. Um, But if it's not implemented uh, thoughtfully, we may see ourselves in a worse situation of inequity uh, if you compare ourselves uh, to what we have available now to what is, let's say, going on in the UK. Uh, If this isn't laid out and and strategically um, put into place, I think it actually will... um, create more disequity uh, among the people who need it the most.
1: Yeah, how would that happen?
2: Well, basically right now, if you look at, um, let's look at the, um, the, the program that was implemented for the um, immigrants that uh, first were coming in. Um, basically, the kind of services that they were given were not comprehensive dental services. They didn't even include preventative dentistry. And when you look at poor oral health, it's completely and almost entirely a preventative preventative disease. So, you know, basically they're they're giving uh, what I would call basic emergent care or emergency care. We're going to treat pain, inflammation, we're allowed to do fillings in a certain way, but basically we're going to be extracting teeth, we're not going to be able to replace them, and this has often in low-income and um, what I would say underserviced or underprivileged uh, demographics. It is called it has caused um, facial um, disabilities. Uh, they cannot get jobs because they cannot replace teeth. and instead of teeth being properly filled or properly treated with, let's say, um, treatments like a root canal or a crown, they just get pulled. And as you pull more and more teeth and they don't have access to preventative um, hygiene, yeah. their teeth just get worse and worse and worse and and that's my concern it's it's nice to say yeah we're going to have a federal program but what does that really look like uh, is it going to be available to clients um and the, the the accessibility is also based on can dental offices in private practice afford to give to give this care i know in bc right now um anyone on these ministry or government programs provincial or federal uh, are paid thirty to fifty percent b- below the fee guidelines, so right. yeah, that's a real disincentive. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not really I'm not really sure how they're they're going to afford. I mean, you look now that they've increased sort of this threshold to people at ninety thousand dollars. I mean, sorry, a person who's making ninety thousand Yet it's a bit tough, but, but honestly they can afford a thousand dollars to budget a thousand dollars on their oral health care we you know i I, I saw some interesting um, programs in, in maybe other provinces where you can apply for grants that can help you but at the end of the day I think we're gonna if we if we increase that threshold to ninety thousand we already aren't doing a great job with people that are you know making less than forty five thousand and that you know, a family of four living on $50,000. That's still happening in BC. Uh, We've got 15% of seniors live on less than 17,000 a year. So we're not even doing a good enough job to address those people. And the flood of that is coming into the non-for-profits like our organization, like other uh, low-cost dental clinics. Uh, We're just We're just doing our best to keep abreast right now.
1: Right. So so the point that you raise there about, you know, there's so many unanswered questions here about how this program would work. But in terms of like the services that would be covered under a program like that, when you talk about preventive services, so that would be like oral hygiene, right? Like getting your teeth cleaned. Right. Right. So,
2: yeah, Yeah, exactly. And you should be, you know, uh, the average person should be at least going twice a year to remove all the, you know, various (laughs) plaque and other what have yous on the teeth so that um, you maintain good good gum condition. And that's sort of why preventative uh, dentistry is so important. And it isn't often included in these sort of basic care packages that are put out um, for individuals that are on government um, ministry-funded type programs.
1: Right. So your question there was, I've just got 30 seconds left here, but you want to see the details of this program, what it's going to cover and would it cover services like that, right? Yeah, yeah 100%.
2: Yeah. And, and are we going to be able to afford it? I mean, I, I just think the logistics haven't been well thought out through. It's it's hmm. it's um, without thoughtful sort of implementation, again, It's it it could create more of a a disequity at the end of the day.
1: Okay. We're following it closely. Thank you for coming on to talk about it today.
2: Thank you for letting me share.
0: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person and I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy
2: now.
1: Alright, let's talk about expanding healthcare services now. And we're already seeing big promises this week. A universal pharmacare program, something healthcare activists have been demanding for years. We talked about a national dental care program earlier on the show today. This is a promise under the Liberal NDP deal announced in Ottawa this week. Okay, how about mental health services and specifically psychological services? Should care provided by a psychologist be part of our Medicare system in B.C.? How about expanding psychologist services? So if you visit a family doctor, if you have one, you'd have also have access to a psychologist in that doctor's office. This is something that's being advocated now by the BC Psychological Association. And let's talk about that now with my guest, Dr. Erica Penner, Director of Public Advocacy for the Psychological Association in BC. I'm very pleased to welcome her. Hi. Hi there.
3: So Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks a lot for coming on. And right now in BC, when you go to visit a, a psychologist, is any of that covered under Medicare?
3: No. I mean, yeah. the, the the chances of getting public access to a psychologist are, are basically slim to none. The, the folks who do are those, realistically, who can pay out of pocket, or who happen to have you know, an amazing extended benefits plan. You know, even yeah. for me, I work in public health, and I think I have $900 a year of psychological services covered, so that's less than four sessions.
1: Yeah, okay, and not everyone ha- even has that, obviously. No. Do you think that the services of psychologists should be covered under our health public health care system?
3: Well, what we're asking for right now is kind of a, a, a step in the right direction, which would be to have psychologists embedded into people's family doctors' offices. And we actually think this is a great place to start. You know, I think what we have right now in terms of mental health care in DC is a real patchwork system. You know, there's different kind of community agencies who are being funded in a sort of piecemeal fashion by our government who's doing their best, I think, with what they've got. But we already have a primary care system. It's, it's set up. It's functioning. Why not put psychologists mental and behavioral health care providers in that system so that people will have access in a way that really not only you know sort of reduces the barriers to mental and behavioral health care but removes them altogether
1: okay so how would that be how would that be set up like what specifically are, is the association proposing to make that happen
3: yeah so what we're proposing is that as a starting place we have about 50 FT full 50 full-time uh, FT gift psychologists placed in primary care networks. So what that would mean is that if you went to see your family doctor and you, let's say you came in with, you know, issues with chronic pain, issues with sleep or stress, depression and anxiety, what they would say is, you know, if you can wait an extra couple of minutes, I can grab the psychologist down the hall and they'll pop in and chat with you for a bit. And what this model does is it actually uh, uses psychologists in a different way. So rather than the kind of one-hour, you know, weekly sessions that you might think of when, when you think of seeing a psychologist, what this is is really targeted... 20-minute interventions, and we know from a study even here in Vancouver that, you know, when people see a psychologist in the family doctor's office for less than three sessions, that we see decreases in anxiety and depression, we see even decreases in suicidality, and decreases in healthcare utilization, right? And we're in a time that, you know, we have a primary care crisis, our family doctors cannot keep up, we know our emergency rooms are swamped, so we know that seeing a psychologist briefly in a targeted way, whether it's for you know uh, physical health concerns or mental health concerns, really decreases our need then to see our GP as often or to go into the emergency room.
1: Okay. Is a system like that in place anywhere else in Canada or any other jurisdictions ar- around the world? I mean, it, it sounds great. Um, it but does, I, I it wonder. It does sound great. Yeah. And so <laughs> yeah, I wonder, actually, is anyone else doing it?
3: Yeah. Actually, this is really the standard of care in a lot of places in the world frankly, including the United States. And, and, you know, insurance companies in the United States would not be providing access to mental and behavioral health care teams run by psychologists if it did not save them money. I mean, you know, that's that's the bottom line that they're focused on. And this is also in place in the U.K., New Zealand, Australia, and, and even in Alberta. It's, it's always a bit embarrassing when Alberta is ahead of us um, on things like <laughs> this. So, yeah, absolutely. This, this feels cutting edge here, but it's, it's not. We have decades of research to show that it improves outcomes for patients it reduces burnout in our family doctors, and ultimately it saves us money both in healthcare but also in our, our economy, right? Mental illness, you know, chronic illnesses, these are big drivers of disability, of sick time for, for our, our entire population.
1: Speaking to Dr. Erica Penner from the BC Psychological Association, what, how would you describe the need for these services here right now? We're over two years into this pandemic. We've got a, a deadly opioid overdose crisis out there with drug addiction. We uh, People can see mental illness on, on the street every day. Like, would you say there's a, a crying need for for services like these right now?
3: I mean, absolutely, and the reality is anyone who needs a family doctor at some point or other will also need a psychologist, right? What do we say now, 25% of people every single year have a mental illness? You know, add to that the people who are experiencing chronic physical illness like diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, right? You know, we know that six of the top ten killers of Canadians are these non-communicable diseases that are related to lifestyle behavioral factors like alcohol use, like drug use, like, you know, how much you move your body, what you eat. So, I mean, to me, it's like, well, does everyone deserve to have a family doctor? Of course they do. And in the same way, everyone deserves to have their mental and behavioral health treated in the exact same way with the same level of care and precision.
1: Right. So who would pay for something like this? Like, let's say you go to visit a family doctor and and we have the scenario you just described. A psychologist will come in and, and talk to you. Would that be covered under your Medicare plan or would there be a fee for service there out of pocket? Who would pay for it?
3: Yeah, we're asking the government to pay for that. So the idea is that it would be free for folks to see the psychologist in the family doctor's office. And what we've proposed is a plan where psychologists would be paid a flat rate by our government in the same way that they pay flat rates for many GPs and nurse practitioners. Um, And so we, we want this to really be, again, Low barrier, zero, you know, zero barrier for folks to be able to come in and, and um, have what is ailing them treated in a way that is timely and cost-effective and efficient. And it, it is more money for our healthcare system, absolutely, to, to, you know, for our government to pay. But we know that we save at least you know two dollars for every one dollar we put into mental and behavioral healthcare. There's been studies all around the world showing this. So it would be upfront cost for our government, but ultimately we'd be saving money and, of course, you know, saving lives, improving people's quality of life, which. Um, hopefully we care about those things too.
1: I, I suspect there would be tremendous demand for services like these in, in British Columbia. Do you ha- are there enough psychologists in British Columbia right now to, to meet the demand? And we already hear about the shortage of, of doctors and healthcare professionals. It's very difficult for people to get a family doctor right now.
3: Yeah, it is, and we have spent a lot of time surveying psychologists and also training up some of the psychologists in our province to make sure that people would be ready to take these positions. I mean, I think I'm a psychologist, and I know ultimately most of us who go into this, into this profession want to help. And absolutely, I mean, we're not short of work. You know, there's no psychologist yeah. in our province who's saying, "Darn, I, you know, I I, I can't get enough patients." We're we're all um, swamped, but we want to help. And I think for many of us, we just we know that we can treat so much of what. Is making people sick and and um, unwell in our province, and to not treat those things when we could is really feels unacceptable. So yes, uh, you know I think certainly there are psychologists who fill these roles, but. Also, there, once we have psychologists in family doctor's offices, there are opportunities to then, for those psychologists to provide supervision and training to individuals with um, different levels of education, you know, sort of a, the counselors of the world. And certainly even in Burnaby, right here in Burnaby, we have the Be well program where we have seven behavioral health coaches who are undergraduate level, but who've been trained and supervised by registered psychologists to provide behavioral health care services. And the outcomes are phenomenal. You know, we're seeing decreases in depression, anxiety, increases in daily step count, um, you know, huge uh, losses in terms of weight and improvements in physical health. So this is really just a foot in the door to get started. But there's lots of ways we can do this that uh, will ensure that everyone has access.
1: Speaking of Dr. Erica Penner, BC Psychological Association, we're, we're living in a time now where there's a lot of discussion about expanding healthcare services dramatically. I mean, just this week, we've heard about a national dental care plan. We've heard about a universal pharma care plan. I mean, these are ideas that have been on the table for years, and, and suddenly now they seem to be gaining momentum. What are your thoughts on that? Like, is this the time to expand these services, or do you think that, you know, if governments start moving forward on, on dental care and pharma care, that the type of services you're advocating for, psychological services, maybe moves to the back of the line?
3: Well, I mean, I think when we see the expansion of these services, to me, it's our government saying that we understand that people deserve to have their health care treated, whether that's treated by a, you know, a medical doctor or a dentist or a psychologist. To me, it's a recognition that health care doesn't end with what an MD can provide us. And it also, to me, speaks to their understanding of a prevention model, right? I mean, we go to see our dentist all of the time, not just when we have a toothache, right? Because we know that it's cheaper, it's easier, it's more effective to be treated for something when the problem just starts, not waiting it, waiting for it to become, you know, severe, pervasive, yeah. intractable. Um, and so it's also a recognition to me that, all of those parts of the person are important, and the reality is we cannot separate mental and physical health. You know, I think sometimes when we talk about that, this, it's like, oh, there's our physical health care and there's our mental health care, but they're not separate. We have decades of research to show that when we're mentally unwell, our physical health suffers. When we're mentally unwell and we have a physical illness, we're less likely to recover. Our recovery takes longer. And also, our, you know, we basically lose years off of our life when we have untreated mental illness. So to me, it's just all part and parcel.
1: Yeah, and okay, just lastly, where are you at now with this this plan, this campaign? Is this now a question of convincing the B.C. government to get behind this, and is there any indication that the government is interested?
3: Yeah, we were so pleased when they asked us to put in a formal proposal last fall, and we have submitted it them. We don't have an indication yet that it'll be covered in the current budget cycle, and we think we probably would have heard from them by now if they were planning yeah. to. Um, but I think we have high hopes. I mean we're all concerned about mental health these days. We all see the you know the ballooning costs of our physical health system how chronic illness is costing us so much, not just in terms of our bottom line, but also in terms of the quality of life of British Columbians. So I I think our government understands how important this is. And although we don't have an indication that it's being funded right now, I think we continue to be very hopeful and would love to meet with Adrian Dix anytime he wants to meet with us.
1: Okay, really interesting. We're following it. Thanks a lot for coming on today. My pleasure. All right, let's talk about inflation now. Everything is going up. People are feeling the pinch, whether it's groceries, gasoline, you name it. Inflation at a 30-year high. Of course, the cost of housing going up, up, and away. Home prices are soaring throughout the region. But it's not just the cost of buying. the cost's costing more to rent as well. Check out these numbers now. The average rental price. For an apartment in Vancouver is up 23% in one year. The largest increase of any Canadian city. That's according to rentals.ca. It's an online rental agency. Let's discuss now with my guest, Paul Dannison. Paul is the content director at rentals.ca. Very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Paul. Hey, thanks, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Okay, 23% rent hike in Vancouver. Wow, this is like the highest in Canada. It's like higher than Toronto, higher than anywhere else?
7: Yes, exactly. Wow. Off the charts. uh, And Victoria is not far behind at 22%.
1: Okay, what is driving it?
7: Well, there's a lot of factors, but I think basically it comes down to lack of supply, uh, immigration, people moving to B.C., and then inflation.
1: Right. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about those. So the lack of lack of supply, how does that drive up rents? Because we're supposed to have rent control here in this province, right? There are limits on how much a landlord can jack up the rent each year. So how does it end up going up 23%? Well, exactly. Uh, your
7: rent control there is 1.5%, but when yeah. somebody moves out of an apartment, then the landlord can charge whatever the market will bear. And there's a lot of things that are done to get some tenants to move. And because of the pandemic, a lot of tenants have moved a lot more than they have in the past.
1: Yeah, we we've all heard about the renovictions, you know, like a landlord decides to renovate a suite, get get someone else in there. And once the once the old tenant moves out and a new tenant moves in, like the sky's the limit. The landlord can charge whatever the landlord wants to charge. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Only in places
7: where they have this notion of what they call vacancy control can they not do that.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about some what people are paying out there. Like right now in Vancouver, let's say a two-bedroom apartment. How much is that going for?
7: All right. Uh, we do this national report every month, and in the month of February, a two bedroom was averaging three thousand fifty dollars in Vancouver.
1: Wow. wow. Three thousand bucks. That's amazing. And then you compare that to other cities like how far is Vancouver like way ahead of these other cities?
7: Pretty much so. When it yeah. comes, certainly when it comes to the two bedroom, I mean, uh, the one bedroom Vancouver's a little over twenty two hundred. Next on the list was Toronto, a little bit over two thousand. So yeah. yeah, Vancouver sticks out.
1: Yeah, it really does. And as you mentioned in your survey, other BC cities also in this top ten list. You got Victoria, very high prices. Burnaby, Surrey, all experiencing uh, price hikes going through the roof. Like like you mentioned it. Um, you mentioned immigration, like BC's population growth, obviously going up. So when you have more people moving here, I mean that's just a simple economic equation, right? It just pushes up the rents. Exactly.
7: And uh, I just saw a study that said uh, the last financial quarter, which had been the last of uh, 2021, that 18,000 people moved to B.C. from other countries and 5,000 from other provinces, particularly uh, Alberta and Ontario. So it's it's leading all of the provinces in people wanting to move there.
1: Yeah, man. Oh, man. This is a dubious distinction for Vancouver with the highest rents in the country. Paul Dannison is my guest, rentals.ca, talking about the huge rent increases here in Vancouver. Um, a lot of people, you've also pointed out that during the pan- pandemic, when a lot of people have been working from home, that also kind of puts pressure, upward pressure on rents, right? Because a lot of people want to move and find what they're looking for, a bigger place to, to live. Exactly.
7: We found during the pandemic, and um, uh, this isn't necessarily uh, backed by data, but what, we, what we've heard is that a lot of people are making life decisions. You've heard of the great resignation, uh, yeah. and people are looking to move up, find more space. They're looking at, do I want to live here, or do I, I want to keep this job? And people are making decisions to move to where they want to live, and they're able to work from home, so... Why not uh, live in beautiful Vancouver or Victoria or B.C.
1: and work wherever I want to work? Yeah, another one that you pointed out in your recent report on this, and it didn't occur to me, but when you have a very limited housing supply, like we've been talking about here in British Columbia, certainly in Metro Vancouver, prices are going up, interest rates are going up to get a mortgage, a lot of people who would have this dream of buying a home, they might look at this market and say, Oh man, like I can't afford this right now. There's nothing for me to buy anyway. The prices are crazy. Interest rates are going up. Maybe I'll just hold off for a while, keep renting. And that's, a, and is that a factor too? And rents going up. Oh my gosh. Yes,
7: exactly. I mean, the benchmark price of a home in the uh, uh, metro Vancouver is over $2 million. Uh, yeah. Even in fraser valley it 's over one point seven million, so you 're looking at those prices. Uh, what kind of salary do you have to bring home to uh, come up with a down payment and save up for uh, a house so yeah, a lot of people who are first time home buyers looking around and they 're saying no i 'm going to have to rent and save money for another five years so yeah. that definitely puts more pressure on the market.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty grim picture we're painting here. Is there any kind of bright spots? Like, if you look around lower mainland, metro Vancouver, are there any places where people can find, that you know, the rents are a little less? Maybe if they're willing to, like, a longer commute, maybe. Exactly. I mean, you're going to find a little bit cheaper rents in
7: New Westminster, Surrey, Langley. Uh, and even the rents have gone up there, but they're not near quite what they are in uh, Vancouver, North Vancouver, Burnaby, Richmond in those areas.
1: Yeah, what's your prognosis here going forward? Do you expect these rents to stay high here? I do.
7: In the short term, uh, I think rents will go up. Spring time, when people move, uh, rents go up a little bit anyway as people uh, want to get out and move. But uh, I think in the near future that rents are going to continue to go up. It's, yeah. it's, it's a very difficult thing to predict when you given all the different variables, including COVID-19, but uh, all the signals that we're seeing is that rents are going to continue to move up.
1: Yeah, we've talked a lot about this on the show, and and one part of the equation here is the the sort of supply and demand equation here, and that when supply is low, obviously prices are, are going to be high. There's been a lot of calls that we need to build more stuff, you know, like we need to build more housing, we need to densify build stuff that people can actually afford to rent or to buy. Do you see, is that the way you see it as well? Like as a guy is sort of on the, on the rental end of it, do you you think BC should be building more rental properties?
7: Yeah, I agree. And especially in uh, what they refer to as a missing middle. These uh, are four plexes, six plexes that you can uh, increase the density in a single family uh, neighborhood and, and spread it out so that everybody feels it a little bit. Now you've got nimbyism which is against that, and politicians are going to listen to nimbyism But uh, let's face it: we have to exchange, we have to uh, accept that uh, change is coming, and we need to plan and be able to equally distribute uh, throughout the region uh, right. what's going on with affordable housing.
1: Paul, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Uh